Chapter Two, Part Twelve of Our Village, Volume One, by Mary Russell Mitford, read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, two thousand and twenty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume One, Walks in the Country, Part Twelve: The Shore. September ninth, a bright, sunshiny afternoon. What a comfort it is to get out again, to see once more that rarity of rarities, a fine day. We English people are accused of talking over much of the weather, but the weather this summer has forced people to talk of it. Summer, did I say? Oh, season most unworthy of that sweet sunny name. Season of coldness and cloudiness, of gloom and rain. A worse November for in november the days are short and shut up in a warm room lighted by that household sun a lamp one feels through the long evenings comfortably independent of the out-of-doors tempests but though we may have and did have fires all through the dog days there is no shutting out daylight and sixteen hours of rain pattering against the windows and dripping from the eaves sixteen hours of rain not merely audible but visible for seven days in the week would be enough to exhaust the patience of job or grizel especially if job were a farmer and grizel a country gentlewoman never was known such a season hay swimming cattle drowning and fruit rotting corn spoiling and that naughty river, the Loddon, who never can take Puff's advice and keep between its banks, running about the country, fields, roads, gardens and houses, like mad, the weather would be talked of. Indeed, it was not easy to talk of anything else. A friend of mine, having occasion to write me a letter, thought it worth abusing in rhyme, and bepommeled it through three pages of bath-guide verse of which I subjoin a specimen. Aquarius surely reigns over the world, and of late his water-pot strangely has twirled, or he's taken a cullender up by mistake, and unceasingly dips it in some mighty lake, though it is not in Lethe, for who can forget the annoyance of getting most thoroughly wet? It must be in the river called Styx, I declare, for the moment it drizzles it makes the men swear. It did rain to-morrow, is growing good grammar. Vauxhall and camp-stools have been brought to the hammer. A pony gondola is all I can keep, and I use my umbrella and patterns in sleep. Row out of my window, whene'er tis my whim to visit a friend and just ask, Can you swim? This friend of mine is a person of great quickness and talent, who, if she were not a beauty and a woman of fortune, that is to say, if she were prompted by either of those two powerful stimuli, want of money or want of admiration, to take due pains, would inevitably become a clever writer. As it is, her notes and jeu d'esprit struck off a trait de plume, have great point and neatness. Take the following billet, which formed the label to a closed basket containing the ponderous present alluded to last Michaelmas Day. To Miss M. When this you see, remember me, was long a phrase in use, and so I send to you, dear friend, my proxy. What? A goose? So far, my friend. 
In short, whether in prose or in verse, everybody railed at the weather. But this is over now. The sun has come to dry the world, mud is turned into dust, rivers have retreated to their proper limits, farmers have left off grumbling, and we are about to take a walk, as usual, as far as the shore, a pretty wood about a mile off. But one of our companions being a stranger to the gentle reader, we must do him the honour of an introduction. Dogs, when they are sure of having their own way, have sometimes ways as odd as those of the unfurred, unfeathered animals who walk on two legs and talk and are called rational. My beautiful white greyhound Mayflower, for instance, dead, alas, since this was written, is as whimsical as the finest lady in the land. Amongst her other fancies, she has taken a violent affection for a most hideous stray dog, who made his appearance here about six months ago, and contrived to pick up a living in the village, one can hardly tell how. Now appealing to the charity of old Rachel Strong, the laundress, a dog-lover by profession, now winning a meal from the light-footed and open-hearted lasses at the Rose, now standing on his hind legs to extort by sheer beggary a scanty morsel from some pair of drowthy cronies or solitary drovers discussing his dinner or supper on the alehouse bench, now catching a mouthful flung to him in pure contempt by some scornful gentleman of the shoulder knot, mounted on his throne the coach-box, whose notice he had attracted by dint of ugliness, now sharing the commons of Master Keep the Shoemaker's pigs, now succeeding to the reversion of the well-gnawed bone of Master Brown the shopkeeper's fierce house-dog, now filching the skim milk of Dame Wheeler's cat, spit at by the cat, worried by the mastiff, chased by the pigs, screamed at by the dame and stormed at by the shoemaker, flogged by the shopkeeper, teased by all the children and scouted by all the animals of the parish, but yet living through his griefs and bearing them patiently, for sufferance is the badge of all his tribe, and even seeming to find in an occasional full meal or a gleam of sunshine or a wisp of dry straw on which to repose his sorry carcass some comfort in his disconsolate condition. In this plight was he found by May, the most high-blooded and aristocratic of greyhounds, and from this plight did May rescue him, invited him into her territory the stable, resisted all attempts to turn him out, reinstated him there in spite of maid and boy and mistress and master, wore out everybody's opposition by the activity of her protection and the pertinacity of her self-will, made him sharer of her bed and of her mess, and finally established him as one of the family as firmly as herself. Dash, for he has even won himself a name amongst us before he was anonymous, Dash is a sort of kind of spaniel, at least there is in his mongrel composition some sign of that beautiful race. Besides his ugliness, which is of the worst sort, that is to say the shabbiest, he has a limp on one leg that gives a peculiar one-sided awkwardness to his gait, but independently of his great merit in being May's pet, he has other merits which serve to account for that phenomenon, being beyond all comparison the most faithful, attached and affectionate animal I have ever known, and that is saying much. 
he seems to think it necessary to atone for his ugliness by extra good conduct, and does so dance on his lame leg, and so wag his scrubby tail, that it does any one who has a taste for happiness good to look at him, so that he may now be said to stand on his own footing. We are all rather ashamed of him when strangers come in the way, and think it necessary to explain that he is May's pet, but amongst ourselves, and those who are used to his appearance, he has reached the point of favouritism in his own person. I have, in common with wiser women, the feminine weakness of loving whatever loves me, and therefore I like Dash. His master has found out that he is a capital finder, and in spite of his lameness, will hunt a field or beat a cover with any spaniel in England, and therefore he likes Dash. The boy has fought a battle in defence of his beauty with another boy, bigger than himself, and beat his opponent most handsomely, and therefore he likes Dash, and the maids like him, or pretend to like him because we do, as is the fashion of that pliant and imitative class. And now Dash and May follow us everywhere, and are going with us to the shore, as I said before, or rather to the cottage by the shore, to bespeak milk and butter of our little dairy woman Hannah Bint, a housewifely occupation to which we owe some of our pleasantest rambles. And now we pass the sunny, dusty village street. Who would have thought a month ago that we should complain of sun and dust again, and turn the corner where the two great oaks hang so beautifully over the clear, deep pond, mixing their cool green shadows with the bright blue sky and the white clouds that flit over it, and loiter at the wheeler's shop, always picturesque, with its tools and its work and its materials all so various in form and so harmonious in colour, and its noise, merry workmen hammering and singing and making a various harmony also. The shop is rather empty today, for its usual inmates are busy on the green beyond the pond, one set building a cart, another painting a wagon, and then we leave the village quite behind and proceed slowly up the cool, quiet lane between tall hedgerows of the darkest verdure overshadowing banks green and fresh as an emerald. Not so quick as I expected, though, for they are shooting here today, as Dash and I have both discovered, he with great delight, for a gun to him is as a trumpet to a war-horse, I with no less annoyance, for I don't think that a partridge itself, barring the accident of being killed, can be more startled than I at that abominable explosion. Dash has certainly better blood in his veins than any one would guess to look at him. He even shows some inclination to elope into the fields in pursuit of those noisy iniquities, but he is an orderly person after all, and a word has checked him. Ah, oh, here is a shriller din mingling with the small artillery, a shriller and more continuous. We are not yet arrived within sight of Master Weston's cottage, snugly hidden behind a clump of elms, but we are in full hearing of Dame Weston's tongue, raised as usual to scolding pitch. The Westons are new arrivals in our neighbourhood, and the first thing heard of them was a complaint from the wife to our magistrate of her husband's beating her. 
it was a regular charge of assault, an information in full form. A most piteous case did Dame Weston make of it, softening her voice for the nonce into a shrill tremulous whine, and exciting the mingled pity and anger, a pity towards herself and anger towards her husband, of the whole female world, pitiful and indignant as the female world is wont to be on such occasions. Every woman in the parish railed at Master Weston, and poor Master Weston was summoned to attend the bench on the ensuing Saturday and answer the charge. And such was the clamour abroad and at home that the unlucky culprit, terrified at the sound of a warrant and a constable, ran away and was not heard of for a fortnight. At the end of that time he was discovered and brought to the bench, and Dame Weston again told her story, and, as before, on the full cry. She had no witnesses, and the bruises of which she made complaint had disappeared, and there were no women present to make common cause with the sex. Still, however, the general feeling was against Master Weston, and it would have gone hard with him when he was called in, if a most unexpected witness had not risen up in his favour. His wife had brought in her arms a little girl about eighteen months old, partly perhaps to move compassion in her favour, for a woman with a child in her arms is always an object that excites kind feelings. The little girl had looked shy and frightened, and had been as quiet as a lamb during her mother's examination, but she no sooner saw her father, from whom she had been a fortnight separated, then she clapped her hands and laughed and cried, Daddy, Daddy, and sprang into his arms and hung round his neck and covered him with kisses, again shouting, Daddy, come home, Daddy, Daddy, and finally nestled her little head in his bosom with a fullness of contentment, an assurance of tenderness and protection, such as no wife-beating tyrant ever did inspire, or ever could inspire, since the days of King Solomon. Our magistrates acted in the very spirit of the Jewish monarch. They accepted the evidence of nature, and dismissed the complaint. And subsequent events have fully justified their decision, Mistress Weston proving not only renowned for the feminine accomplishment of scolding, tongue-banging it is called in our parts, a compound word which deserves to be Greek, but is actually herself addicted to administering the conjugal discipline, the infliction of which she was pleased to impute to her luckless husband. Now we cross the stile and walk up the fields to the shore. How beautifully green this pasture looks, and how finely the evening sun glances between the boles of that clump of trees, beech and ash and aspen, and how sweet the hedgerows are with woodbine and wild scabias, or as the country people call it, the gypsy rose. Here is little Dolly Weston, the unconscious witness, with cheeks as red as a real rose, tottering up the path to meet her father and here is the carroty-polled urchin George Coper returning from work and singing Home Sweet Home at the top of his voice, and then when the notes prove too high for him, continuing the air in a whistle until he has turned the impassable corner, then taking up again the song and the words Home Sweet Home, and looking as if he felt their full import, ploughboy though he be. And so he does, 
for he is one of a large and honest, a kind and an industrious family, where all goes well, and where the poor ploughboy is sure of finding cheerful faces and coarse comforts, all that he has learned to desire. Oh, to be as cheaply and as thoroughly contented as George Coper! All his luxuries a cricket match, all his wants satisfied in home, sweet home. Nothing but noises today. They are clearing Farmer Brooks' great beanfield and crying the harvest home in a chorus, before which all other sounds, the song, the scolding, the gunnery, fade away and become faint echoes. A pleasant noise is that, though for one's ear's sake one makes some haste to get away from it. And here, in happy time, is that pretty wood, the shore, with its broad pathway, its tangled dingles, its nuts and its honeysuckles. And carrying away a faggot of those sweetest flowers, we reach Hannah Bince, of whom and of whose doings we shall say more another time. And a footnote. Poor Dash is also dead. We didn't keep him long. Indeed, I believe that he died of the transition from starvation to good feed, as dangerous to a dog's stomach and to most stomachs as the less agreeable change from good feed to starvation. He has been succeeded in place and favour by another Dash, not less amiable in demeanour and far more creditable in appearance, bearing no small resemblance to the pet spaniel of my friend Master Dinley, he who stole the bone from the magpies and who figures as the first dash of this volume. Let not the unwary reader opine that in assigning the same name to three several individuals I am acting as a humble imitator of the inimitable writer who has given immortality to the peppers and the mustards on the one hand, or showing a poverty of invention or a want of acquaintance with the bead-roll of canine appellations on the other. I merely, with my usual scrupulous fidelity, take the names as I find them. The fact is that half the handsome spaniels in England are called Dash, just as half the tall footmen are called Thomas. The name belongs to the species. Sitting in an open carriage one day last summer at the door of a farmhouse where my father had some business, I saw a noble and beautiful animal of this kind lying in great state and laziness on the steps, and felt an immediate desire to make acquaintance with him. My father, who had had the same fancy, had patted him and called him poor fellow in passing, without eliciting the smallest notice in return. "'Dash!' cried I at a venture. "'Good Dash! Noble Dash!' And up he started in a moment, making but one spring from the door to the gig. Of course I was right in my guess. The gentleman's name was Dash." End of chapter 2, part 12